This episode of the Kyle Style Podcast is brought to you in part by Kyle Style Design. Visit redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Kyle Style Design to get some of my original artwork on tumblers, shirts, and posters, prints, book covers, etc. And uh, get some one-of-a-kind artwork in your life in a functional, fashionable way and contribute to the podcast. You can also contribute to the podcast by going to GoFundMe. Uh, I have a link on the blog here, uh, or you can Google it, Kyle Style Podcast, uh, GoFundMe page there, and throw me a dollar, you know, dollar an episode, whatever you want to do, and uh, keep this uh, keep this thing moving. Thanks, and uh, we just recently got up on, uh, let's see, we're on Google Play Music now, we're on Podcast Addict, which is a fantastic uh, podcast aggregator app. Uh, we're on iTunes and Stitcher, so... Uh, Leave ratings, uh, share around, and uh, leave some feedback. Follow me on Twitter, at KStylePodcast. And uh, here we go, back with a brand new episode for you. Enjoy. So welcome back to Man's Search for Meaning, Part 2. My uh, excerpt and analysis of uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. So, uh, kind of ironically, ran into a little bit of trouble. I had this whole podcast already recorded, and then uh, my recording software decided to uh, turn large portions of it into silence and otherwise uh, not actually play the file. So, I've had to start over from scratch on this one, and uh, hopefully this time it will work just fine, and... Uh, I've, I'm hoping that uh, this was all worth it because, as you'll see in this uh, in this episode, we move past the setup. Part one was kind of the setup for Dr. Frankel and his experiences in the camps, and we're gonna move now into his discoveries and his re- re- uh, revelations, realizations, his lessons that he learned, which apply for really kind of all people, all situations, all struggles, right? At least uh, that's what I'm going to co-opt them for is my own struggles. In some cases, it's just getting a podcast recorded and that the struggle helps to define who we are and how we live and what we do next in the future. So let's begin again at the beginning, uh, in the middle of the story, but the beginning of this podcast for the second time for me, the first time for you, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, Part 2. A man counted only because he had a prison number. One literally became a number. Dead or alive, that was unimportant. The life of a number was completely irrelevant. What stood behind that number and that life mattered even less. The fate, the history, the name of the man. The majority of prisoners suffered from a kind of inferiority complex. We all had once been or had fancied ourselves to be somebody. Now we were treated like complete non-entities. The consciousness of one's inner value is anchored in higher, more spiritual things and cannot be shaken by camp life. But how many free men, let alone prisoners, possess it? The more prominent prisoners, the capos, the cooks, the storekeepers and the camp policemen did not, as a rule, feel degraded at all, like the majority of prisoners. But on the contrary, 
promoted. Some even developed miniature delusions of grandeur. So he's talking about the uh, the effectiveness of dehumanization, right? That you remove people's names, you remove their profession, you remove large portions of their identity, right? And then they, in turn, sort of in, in an imprisoned sense, they accept that new kind of status, right? And they, they lose their connection they might have had to... Um, to previous uh, to their previous ideals and and beliefs and uh, and integrity even morals possibly right so stamping them with a number literally with a tattoo of the number on their arm referring to them not by their name but by their number uh, has a corrosive effect um, on the individual and their ability to uh, cope with this incredibly stressful environment that they're in. He goes on to describe certain, um, you know, certain uh, various approaches to dealing with the camp life. In attempting this psychological presentation and a psychopathological explanation of the typical characteristics of a concentration camp inmate, I may give the impression that the human being is completely and unavoidably influenced by his surroundings. Is that theory true, which would have us believe that man is no more than a product of many conditional and environmental factors, be they of a biological, psychological, or sociological nature? Is man but an accidental product of these? Most important, do the prisoner's reactions to the singular world of the concentration camp prove that man cannot escape the influence of his surroundings? Does man have no choice of action in the face of such circumstances? So he's saying kind of a nature-nurture thing, like do you at some point completely surrender your free will and you are completely controlled by the fact that you're in this horrible environment and that then dictates all the rest of your decisions, right? He continues. The experiences of camp life show that man does have a choice of action. There were enough examples, often of a heroic nature, which proved that apathy could be overcome, irritability suppressed. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence of mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. I think in, in some sense that's a little bit of cold comfort. You know, you can build this sort of fortress in yourself where you, it almost seems delusional or something, that you... you cling to some higher ideal despite how overwhelmingly hopeless it all seems, right? But he, uh, he, he reiterates this here. Every day, every hour, offered the opportunity to make a decision. A decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom. Which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of the typical inmate. 
So he's saying, you know, you, you, you are, you're constantly being battered, right? And your identity and yourself, how you view yourself, and then how you act as a result of, you know, what you feel your circumstances are, is all being uh, invaded by all of these negative things that are around you. He, he goes on to describe it. Even though conditions such as lack of sleep, insufficient food, and various mental stresses may suggest that the inmates were bound to react in certain ways, in the final analysis it becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision, and not the result of camp influences alone. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him mentally and spiritually. He may retain his human dignity even in a concentration camp. So it's kind of, it's it, like, again, it's sort of like a cold comfort thing. I mean, you, you, you are somewhat delusional about how horrific your circumstances are, and you choose to just, you just sort of choose to take a more hopeful or proactive approach. Um, you choose to not I guess it's like not be defined by the things that have been taken from you but be defined or believe in yourself as a person who is is doing what you're doing to survive and that you are having a net positive influence right and I think that the specifically in concentration camp terms, I mean, most people's suffering are just not anywhere near comparison uh, to these kinds of horrors. However, you do see, and I think everybody's guilty of it at some point, um, you get a flat tire in your car, and it's like the end of the world, right? Or you're, you have somebody break up with you, and it's, ah, it's the end of the world. Well, you can choose to let these things dictate how you feel about yourself and thus dictate kind of, you know, your your actions moving forward or you just take a position that this is one more thing. This is just one more piece of sort of suffering for me to get through and I I can. I can get through it, right? And not only I can get through it, but this kind of this suffering and these events are as much a part of my life as all the positive things, right? All right. He continues. Dostoevsky said once, There is only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my sufferings. These words frequently came to my mind after I became acquainted with those martyrs whose behavior in camp, whose suffering and death, bore witness to the fact that the last inner freedom cannot be lost. It can be said that they were worthy of their sufferings, the way they bore their suffering was a genuine inner achievement. It is this spiritual freedom which cannot be taken away that makes life meaningful and purposeful. So I feel like you hear some of these stories, you know, you hear, we call we call them inspirational stories about, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a veteran wounded in, in war uh, loses seemingly everything and yet they pull from it um they still are able to muster a kind of compassion uh patience about life and a new plan a new intention for themselves and they weren't too heavily wedded you know to 
what their life was. They've now accepted how it is, and they choose to use whatever is within their power in their new context, right? And then they, you know, tend to, uh, the, the inspirational story thing anyway is, you know, they go out and help the, the needy and they pursue kind of a form of personal excellence, I guess. Uh, they pursue a moral life and they have, you know, sort of been, they become worthy of their sufferings, right? Like they, they have suffered, but they turn it, you know, uh, turn the lead into gold, so to speak. So he continues. An active life serves the purpose of giving man the opportunity to realize values in creative work, while a passive life of enjoyment offers him the opportunity to obtain fulfillment in experiencing beauty, art, or nature. But there is also purpose in that life, which is almost barren of both creation and enjoyment, and which admits of but one possibility of high moral behavior. Namely, in man's attitude to his existence, an existence restricted by external forces. A creative life and a life of enjoyment are banned to him, but not only creativeness and enjoyment are meaningful. If there is a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is an ineradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. So this is something that uh, and there was. Uh, <laughs> I'm reminded of the uh, South Park episode about uh, emo goth kids and uh, the sort of emotional maturity that you have to have to kind of overcome a general moroseness or a general melancholy, maybe a depression. It's that you are not just the sum of your positive experiences you are also the you're the sum of both you are the sum of the sufferings and the negative events and the positive events and they cannot necessarily be in balance and that's where we kind of find ourselves maybe unhappy right when there isn't it doesn't seem to be a balance between the two but it's about wanting to regain a balance right you, you see that the things are not in place, they're, they're out of balance, but you're still alive. You still have your capacity. You still have your capacity to change your circumstances by uh, applied willpower, right? Discipline. And uh, there are beautiful things that enrapture us and entrance us, and then there are the things we kind of avoid and we kind of gloss over them. Um, and we, we try to kind of sweep those under the rug. And those are just as much a part of your kind of emotional growth and your emo emotional maturity as the super happy fun times, right? And uh, he, he describes. Man's inner strength may, may raise him above his outward fate. Such men are not only in concentration camps, Everywhere man is confronted with fate, with the chance of achieving something through his own suffering. So it's it's kind of like, you know, he's kind of applying this lesson to people who aren't in such horrific circumstances as concentration camps, right? It, it kind of helps put your own struggles in a little bit of context, right? Maybe you're, you, have a, you record a whole podcast and then the software glitches and deletes it. And that could be a total end to your endeavor and you just go, ah, you know, forget about it. But 
you just 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 soldier on like it's it could be much much worse you the decisions that you're making in your life could be being controlled manipulated dictated by forces that are far far worse than your wife or your boss or you know oh i'm i'm broke so i can't go see the movie uh your your decisions are being dictated but they could be being dictated in a much more severe way about much worse things no, you can't go out at night. There's curfew. No, you can't walk the streets without this, you know, Star of David, you know, sewn on. No, you can't leave the camp. Uh, no, you're going to die right now because we're going to kill you. And it's not to belittle our struggles because, of course, none of us, you know, most most likely people listening uh, have never been anywhere near even a regular prison or a concentration camp anything of that kind of suffering but uh we you know we we have a control a sense of control at any given time at least over our inner selves right okay here we go he continues we have stated that that which was ultimately responsible for the state of the prisoner's inner self was not so much the enumerated psychophysical causes as it was the result of a free decision. Psychological observations of the prisoners have shown that only the men who allowed their inner hold on their moral and spiritual selves to subside eventually fell victim to the camp's degenerating influences. The question now arises, what could or should have constituted this inner hold? Former prisoners, when writing or relating their experiences, agree that the most depressing influence of all was that a prisoner could not know how long his term of imprisonment would be. We can add to this by defining it as a provisional existence of unknown limit. So you can wait for a bus because you know that there should be a bus coming, right? You can wait for a baby to be born because you know that a baby will be born eventually, right? Not knowing whether you will be liberated uh, from one of these camps, it would have to be, you know, an army would have to fight a war and then liberate territory and eventually get to you. And wars aren't certain. Maybe the Germans fight well enough and they fight off the Allies and fight off the Russians and, you know, we, and then you're just still perpetually stuck. What if they make peace and you're still, you're just trapped behind, you know, the lines. You never know what's going to happen. So the provisional existence of unknown limit is more horrific the more horrific your circumstances are, right? The more unpleasant they are, the kind of less patience you want to have right and the more dire it seems um but i wanted to apply that term provisional existence of unknown limit to a broader you know broader usage by you know non-inmates which is we are alive and we are in the world and we are suffering our own you know our own sufferings and we have a provisional existence of unknown limit, right? We don't know how long we're going to be here. We don't know how long we're going to be suffering. And so it is more imperative, essentially, to uh, take these kind of lessons, you know? You know uh, learn these stories. Learn how suffering can be overcome and how you manage or handle uh, unpleasantness in your life, right? And handling it with a kind of strength and maturity, Right. Um, 
because we don't we don't have time to waste. We don't have time to waste, right? He goes on. The Latin word finis has two meanings, the end or the finish, and a goal to reach. A man who could not see the end of his provisional existence was not able to aim at an ultimate goal in life. He ceased living for the future, in contrast to a man in normal life. Therefore, the whole structure of his inner life changed. Signs of decay set in which we know from other areas of life. The unemployed worker, for example, is in a similar position. His existence has become provisional, and in a certain sense, he cannot live for the future or aim at a goal. Research work done on unemployed minors has shown that they suffer from a peculiar sort of deformed time, inner time, which is a result of their unemployed state. Prisoners, too, suffered from this strange time experience. So, you know, it's, it's there's that identity thing, right? You identify yourself as a, as a go-getter, as a highly employable person, and then you can't find a job. And it might not have anything to do with you. Maybe robots replaced you at your job. Maybe they sent your job out of overseas, you know. Uh, maybe, you, maybe you were injured or something, and it, it's not really... Uh, up to your ability or your desire to work, it's just market forces, etc., etc., have resulted in you not being able to satisfy that part of yourself which you view yourself as, right? It'd be like a marathon runner losing a leg in an accident. It'd be, it'd be you know, more of a blow to them because now they cannot pursue that part of themselves anymore. Um, and that uh, you get thrown into that kind of uncertainty maelstrom of what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. You don't have your, you have to apply your own self-discipline if you want to have any order in your life, right? So he, he continues. A man who let himself decline because he could not see any future goal found himself occupied with retrospective thoughts. In a different connection, we have already spoken of the tendency there was to look into the past to help make the present with all its horrors less real. But in robbing the present of its reality, there lay a certain danger. It became easy to overlook the opportunities to make something positive of camp life, opportunities which really did exist. Regarding our provisional existence as unreal was in itself an important factor in causing the prisoners to lose their hold on life. Everything in a way became pointless. So when you're, you're caught up in trying to shelter your mind with positive thoughts, um, trying to, you know, kind of just hide in your positive past experiences, you are missing the fact that other people are also suffering and that you maybe have something you can contribute to them um, and that will help them suffer less. And if maybe if they're suffering less, then maybe you would suffer less, right? And uh, it's a kind of self-involved, sort of narcissistic kind of view, anyway, that you are you are the sole sufferer, and ignoring the fact that there are many, many others who are also suffering. Right? He continues. We could say that most men in a concentration camp believed that the real opportunities of life had passed, yet in reality there was an opportunity and a challenge. One could make a victory of those experiences, turning life into an inner triumph, or one could ignore the challenge and simply vegetate, as did a majority of the prisoners.
So, you know, choosing how you're going to respond and react in any given moment, right? Choosing to have a stiff upper lip and, uh, you know, share, uh, bring others up with you as opposed to just being mired in the negativity, right? He describes, uh, he goes on to describe the importance of uh, the sort of goal-setting kind of mentality. It is a peculiarity of man that he can only live by looking to the future, and this is his salvation in the most difficult moments of his existence, although he sometimes has to force his mind to the task. So this is something that I think, you know, he mentioned the unemployment thing. It's a relatable um, to this day and age, less so than maybe a concentration camp, right? Um, but he um, he describes trying to cope with all of the sort of pragmatic and short-term problems that he's facing, you know. Uh, he talks about, like, finding a piece of wire to use as, uh, as shoelaces, uh, where he's going to get another piece of bread from, or how he, how he can get in good with the guards, and where he can kind of scrounge a, a better meal from, that kind of thing. And uh, so he describes this, his, his pushback and his resistance to this uh, corrosive onslaught of, uh, of individual choices that he has to make to try to stay alive, but that they all serve kind of it's like an eddy in a river a little bit like it serves only the needs at the moment not the long-term needs so he continues i became disgusted with the state of affairs which compelled me daily and hourly to think of only such trivial things i forced my thoughts to turn to another subject suddenly i saw myself standing on the platform of a well-lit warm and pleasant lecture room in front of me sat an attentive audience on comfortable upholstered seats. I was giving a lecture on the psychology of the concentration camp. All that oppressed me at that moment became objective, seen and described from the remote viewpoint of science. By this method I succeeded somehow in rising above the situation, above the sufferings of the moment, and I observed them as if they were already of the past. Both I and my troubles became the object of an interesting psychoscientific study undertaken by myself. What does Spinoza say in his Ethics? Affectus qui passio est desinit esse passio simulatic ius calarm et disinfactum formanus idiom. I probably butchered that. Translated, it says. Emotion, which is suffering, ceases to be suffering as soon as we form a clear and precise picture of it. So basically, once you can place it, you know, once you once you can place the, you know, you're you're in school and you're taking the classes and the classes are hard, but it's all intended to service having a career. Uh, you have some kind of accident and you're injured and there's a recovery process and you 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 go well it's really hard to stretch that injured limb the point is to get full functionality back so once you have a path laid out for you it makes that initial or that momentary suffering uh more manageable you you see that there's a path that you're headed on and that's that future goal aspect again right
he describes how there's a difference between those who had this kind of schema or this ability and those who don't. The prisoner who has who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. And I'd compare this to, uh, you know, addiction, right? It's like depression and addiction kind of uh, hijack a person and take control of them because they have no uh, other way of viewing their existence, right? They have no future goal. They have no belief in themselves and a brighter future, right? Usually, it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and to wash or to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. So, having that motivational belief, right, that you're going to get up and you're going to put your shoes on and you're going to try again for that day. If you lose a longer-term kind of um, uh, framework for the struggle, then you can lose kind of all hope. He... uh, he relates the story of a, a patient, uh, well, one of the patients in the camp who said he had a dream, that a voice was telling him that on March 31st, they were going to be liberated. Uh, he passed away on March 30th. So he, you know, he he had the dream, he had the vision, you know, that, that on the 31st we're going to be liberated. Well, on the 30th, it was fairly obvious that he that, that we weren't going to be liberated, right? He passed away. He continues. Those who know how close the connection is between the state of mind of a man, his courage and hope, or lack of them, and the state of immunity of his body will understand that the sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. The ultimate cause of my friend's death was that the expected liberation did not come, and he was severely disappointed. This suddenly lowered his body's resistance against the latent typhus infection. His faith in the future and his will to live had become paralyzed, and his body fell victim to illness, and thus the voice of his dream was right after all. He maybe became liberated. So that loss of motivation comes from a, a a blow to the the anticipation or to the expectation right and especially if it's like a dream all of a sudden it kind of seems like maybe it's a little supernatural kind of a prophetic thing and then oopsies it's not happening and you have nothing to fall back on because the sort of self manifested prophecy doesn't come true he continues The death rate in the week between Christmas 1944 and New Year's 1945 increased in camp beyond all previous experience. In his opinion, the explanation for this increase did not lie in the harder working conditions of of the deterioration of our food supplies or a change of weather or new epidemics. It was simply that the majority of the prisoners had lived in the naive hope that they would be home again by Christmas. As the time drew near and there was no encouraging news, the prisoners lost courage and disappointment overcame them. This had a dangerous influence on their powers of resistance, and a great number of them died. 
I'm reminded of at least a, was, I think it was an anecdote that was in uh, Carl Sagan's uh, Demon Haunted World, I think it was, that they, they found a correlation between uh, it was like Chinese Lunar New Year and afterward uh, a spike in uh, older female deaths. And I think we have there's probably a, a you know a, a similar effect in the West with like maybe Christmas, Thanksgiving, that kind of thing, New Year's. That uh, basically the the Chinese Lunar New Year is heavily uh, matriarchal. It's a female centered uh, event uh, holiday, and so older women who you know are reaching the end, so to speak, they kind of muster their strength and they say I'm going to get through one more and then they get through one more and they say that's it I'm not going to be doing another one and when they surrender that uh, that that drive to continue then they, they pass away, they die and it's similar to the Christmas wish of these uh, inmates they, they believe we're going to be rescued by Christmas, and then they don't, and then they give up their greater struggle, right? The disappointment lowers their will to keep kind of pushing on, right? He continues. As we said before, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. Nietzsche's words, He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how could be the guiding motto for all psychotherapeutic and psychohygienic efforts regarding prisoners. Whenever there was an opportunity for it, one had to give them a why, an aim, for their lives, in order to strengthen them to bear the terrible how of their existence. Woe to him who saw no more sense in his life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. He was soon lost." The typical reply with which such a man rejected all encouraging arguments was, I have nothing to expect from life anymore. What sort of answer can one give to that? So that uh, that Nietzsche quote, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. Um, I remember when I first read this book that that, that quote stuck with me. And it's... Uh, it's, it's quite telling and we, we we have lots of stories about this right people who endure all kinds of crazy things and travel long distances etc um you know you even have fictional things lord of the rings right it's frodo carrying the ring and he has a why to carry the ring and so that enables him to bear the how there's a constant sense of responsibility and uh drive to to survive um and then we, but I think we, we tend to leave that in the realm of story. We, we take some inspiration from it, but it is true and it's active in our daily lives, right? And how we go about being ourselves and doing what we do. Um, so uh, he, he continues in this line. What was really needed was a fundamental change in our attitude toward life. We had to learn ourselves, and furthermore, we had to teach the despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life, and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life daily and hourly. 
Our answer must consist not in talk and meditation, but in right action and in right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. So there's kind of a a pushback there. You have your expectation for what you want your life to be, and then there's a reality that maybe goes a different direction. Maybe everything goes sideways. Well, if you surrender to it and you you know you die, you've you've lost all influence in reality. There's uh, a responsibility to kind of just cope sometimes. Sometimes coping and surviving is kind of like the best you can do, right? He continues. No situation repeats itself, and each situation calls for a different response. Sometimes the situation in which a man finds himself may require him to shape his own fate by action. At other times it is more advantageous for him to make use of an opportunity for contemplation and to realize assets in this way. Sometimes man may be required simply to accept fate, to bear his cross. So, I mean, sometimes you just got to roll with the punches. You got to go with the flow. And then other times you maybe find yourself having a little more control and not not being destroyed by a lack of control, right? Allows you to handle the times when you don't have control, right? Uh, he goes on. When a man finds that it is his destiny to suffer, he will have to accept his suffering as his task his single and unique task. He will have to acknowledge the fact that even in suffering he is unique and alone in the universe. No one can relieve him of his suffering or suffer in his place. His unique opportunity lies in the way in which he bears this burden. And something I would add here is that you should be suspicious of people who claim that they can relieve you of this burden uh utopianism and uh the, the the machinations of politicians and religious leaders and cult leaders and maybe even parents or even a loved one can have this kind of corrosive effect where they kind of say oh well i i can i can absolve you of that burden that is yours or you can share it somehow you can't share it you can you can never really share it. Someone can maybe help you with it, right? But that's in that's also in their own universe, right? No one can externally kind of remove that suffering from you. And when people say they can, they probably are looking to get something from you, and you're losing your own discipline at handling your own suffering, and you're kind of outsourcing it, right? And maybe you end up in Jonestown, right? And you know, go back the Carl Sagan flavored Kool-Aid episode you have people who claim that they can remove that individual unique human experience from you and you it, it ends badly but I digress he continues once the meaning of suffering had been revealed to us we refused to minimize or alleviate the camp's tortures by ignoring them or harboring false illusions and entertaining artificial optimism so seeing people die early because of a you know a, a sort of fantasy that they created where they were going to be liberated by a certain day 
they didn't, uh, the survivors didn't engage in that. They found a, I kind of think of it as like a deeper reservoir of will to live. The will to live wasn't because we were about to be saved. The will to live is that we can handle this. I mean, it seems kind of like what it's getting at is that we can handle this hell, right? And we will see it through to the bitter end, not believing in false hopes. He continues, Suffering had become a task on which we did not want to turn our backs. We had realized its hidden opportunities for achievement, the opportunities which caused the poet Rilke to write, Wie will ist aufzuleiden? How much suffering there is to get through. Rilke spoke of getting through suffering as others would talk of getting through work. There was plenty of suffering for us to get through. Therefore, it was necessary to face up to the full amount of suffering, trying to keep moments of weakness and furtive tears to a minimum. But there was no need to be ashamed of tears, for tears bore witness that a man had the greatest of courage, the courage to suffer. So he's saying you kind of own up to how bad it really is and realize that in, in a certain sense, anyway, you've uniquely been put in this position to kind of bear this cross, this incredibly uh, gnarly cross, and there is an end to it. One way or another, there's an end to it, but, uh, you know, you sort of, you don't know what's going to happen, uh, ultimately, and so you demonstrate to others as well, right, uh, that... It, this can be handled, right? And it's okay to cry. It's okay to be kind of broken down, at least temporarily, by it. But you rise again, right? He uh, he goes on. A man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears toward a human being who affectionately waits for him, or to an unfinished work, will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence and will be able to bear almost any how. So having that motivational drive, having that that goal, that endeavor, that work for him, that manuscript, uh, you know, the idea of teaching other people and explaining uh, what the camp experience was like became his own motivation, right? Maybe at first others it was just that they were hoping to reunite with family, right? And then when you apply this in a general way in, you know, daily life as, you know, as just a regular person, uh, you have to find the, you have to find the why, right? If you can find the why, then the how follows. Um, but, you know, love and family and your personal works and your personal endeavors, careers, that kind of thing. Uh, all serve to show you that why. He goes on. So I began by mentioning the most trivial of comforts first. I said that even in this Europe in the sixth winter of the Second World War, our situation was not the most terrible we could think of. I said that each of us had to ask himself what irreplaceable losses he had suffered up to then. I speculated that for most of them these losses had really been few. Whoever was still alive had reason for hope. 
health, family, happiness, professional abilities, fortune, position in society, all these were things that could be achieved again or restored. After all, we still had all our bones intact. Whatever we had gone through could still be an asset to us in the future. And I quoted from Nietzsche, Was mich nicht umbricht, macht mich starker. That which does not kill me makes me stronger. And Was du erlebst, kann keine Macht der Welt dir rauben. What you have experienced, no power on earth can take from you. So that kind of goes back again to that kind of that singular aspect that maybe it's a little bit solipsistic even, but your whole experience is yours and it might be similar to other people's, but other people are going to handle it in their own way and you have to handle it in your way. And you, if you find your reason, right? If you can find the, if you can find the why, then you now have all the reason you need to push back against the source of your suffering and to to attempt to outlast the suffering uh, and change your situation, change your circumstances, right? And of course, this is all easier said than done, and I feel like it's easy to lose sight of this when you're really in the mix, right? But, uh, you know, and ultimately, their suffering did end. You know, we, uh, the Allies... Uh, defeated the Nazis and liberated the camps one by one and it was this uh, kind of international spectacle of how horrific they were and now of course you have the state of Israel exists primarily as a result of uh, you know the the Holocaust and everything but uh, he describes of course he survived because he's our humble narrator uh, he he describes surviving and being liberated and leaving the camp we came to meadows full of flowers. We saw and realized that they were there, but we had no feelings about them. The first spark of joy came when we saw a rooster with a tail of multicolored feathers. But it remained only a spark. We did not yet belong to this world. In the evening, when we all met again in our hut, one said secretly to the other, Tell me, were you pleased today? And the other replied, feeling ashamed as he did not know, that we all felt similarly. Truthfully, no. We had literally lost the ability to feel pleased and had to relearn it slowly. So, you know, and they might have survived physically, but emotionally and, and mentally, they had adapted to this horrific environment. And so now, like, a field of flowers, you know, maybe sunshine on them, didn't, didn't spark any joy because they were not... I mean, there might be a, even a you know serotonin, uh, hema, uh, oxytocin kind of shortage going on here, where they they just haven't felt pleasure in so long that their their bodies and their minds wouldn't accept new pleasures. Right? He continues. The way that led from the acute mental tension of the last days in camp, from the war of nerves to mental peace, was certainly not free from obstacles. It would be an error to think that a liberated prisoner was not in need of spiritual care anymore. We have to consider that a man who has been under such enormous mental pressure for such a long time is naturally in some danger after his liberation, especially since the pressure was released quite suddenly. This danger, in the sense of psychological hygiene, is the psychological counterpart of the bends. 
just as the physical health of the caisson worker would be endangered if he left his diver's chamber suddenly, where he is under enormous atmospheric pressure. So the man who has suddenly been liberated from mental pressure can suffer damage to his moral and spiritual health. And I mean, similar to the, you know, feel the flowers thing. Like, they just, they don't know how to handle suddenly not uh, being in that environment anymore. Their body has been trained and conditioned to cope with that environment, and now that environment is gone. And uh, I think about the, the scenes from the, the movie Shawshank Redemption. You got uh, uh, Morgan Freeman's character. He gets out of prison, and he can't go to the bathroom without asking permission first because he spent you know 30 years or whatever locked up. He always had to ask. He became trained to uh, be that way and be institutionalized is the term we use, right? And so these these uh, these inmates just were not ready to fully accept all of the kind of emotional and spiritual challenges that a normal free man uh, is is forced to deal with. Uh, and they also have, of course, increased grief as a result of, uh, you know, finding out that family members are possibly, you know, dead. That person they were waiting for is no longer there. But uh, he continues. When we spoke about attempts to give a man in camp mental courage we said that he had to be shown something to look forward to in the future he had to be reminded that life still waited for him that a human being waited for his return but after liberation there were some men who found that no one awaited them woe to him who found that the person whose memory alone had given him courage in camp did not exist anymore woe to him who when the day of his dreams finally came found it so different from all he had longed for. So you talk about that expectation not matching reality again, and maybe this time it's, you know, that your wife, your loved one, child, maybe is is gone. Maybe in some cases, like the Holocaust, his entire generations are gone, and you maybe have no one. You're the last of your family, um, and there is no happy reunion for you. And that becomes in your freedom becomes a huge you know source of suffering uh survivor's guilt and all that and that's when you still need to find the why right and if those people were the why you kind of got to start from scratch right but for every one of the liberated prisoners the day comes when looking back on his camp experiences he can no longer understand how he endured it all as the day of his liberation eventually came, when everything seemed to him like a beautiful dream, so also the day comes when all his camp experiences seem to him nothing but a nightmare. The crowning experience of all for the homecoming man is the wonderful feeling that, after all he has suffered, there is nothing he need fear any more except his God. And I mean, that, that might be kind of, again, that cold comfort of just what, you know, what more can anyone do to me? You know, uh, Hitler took everything from me. Uh, the Holocaust took everything from me. There's nothing much more other than death that can be foisted on me that I can't, in some sense, at least handle or survive, right? And, uh, in the uh, in the in the Beacon Press edition, that's the end of the 
the Holocaust narrative aspect. The second part of the book goes on to describe uh, the uh, logotherapy, which is his, uh, which is Frankel's you know, sort of personal take on psychotherapy. And it's uh, it's sort of pragmatic and functional, and uh, I'm not sure how how it bears out maybe nowadays compared to other forms of therapy. But there's very interesting and useful pieces here. So uh, we're we're gonna dive into the the second part here, the logotherapy in a nutshell. He he opens with this anecdote. I am reminded of the American doctor who once turned up in my office in Vienna and asked me, Now, doctor, are you a psychoanalyst? Whereupon I replied, Not exactly a psychoanalyst, but say a psychotherapist. Then he continued questioning me, What school do you stand for? I answered, It is my own theory. It is called logotherapy. Can you tell me in one sentence what is meant by logotherapy? he asked. At least, what is the difference between psychoanalysis and logotherapy? Yes, I said. But in the first place, you can tell me. Can you tell me in one sentence what you think the essence of psychoanalysis is? This was his answer. During psychoanalysis, the patient must lie down on a couch and tell you things which sometimes are very disagreeable to tell. Whereupon I immediately retorted with the following improvisation. Now. In logotherapy, the patient may remain sitting erect, but he must hear things which sometimes are very disagreeable to hear. So it's, uh, I hate to say it's like a tough love, right? But uh, a, a kind of honesty is required, right? A how bad is this actual suffering? What is the actual source of this suffering? Uh, what are you actually doing to resolve the suffering? Is this a problem that can be resolved? Or is this a problem you, that you just need to kind of muscle through, right? And putting those things in context can be somewhat unforgiving, right? If you're an alcoholic, guess what? You need to stop drinking because your alcoholism is causing you damage. It's nobody else's fault. It's purely your fault, right? Uh, that... Uh, that kind of objectivity would, of course, come from a guy who had suffered through all kinds of horrendous terrors and then have a patient, you know, in his, uh, you know, liberated uh, clinic uh, say, oh, I'm I'm upset by something, <laughs> you know, uh, him being able to be patient and put it back in a normal sort of normal person's context. It's uh, it's a very mentally flexible of him, right? Imagine what he would say about some of our narcissistic nonsense that people are upset about nowadays. Oh, my podcast got ruined, and I was angry. You know, <laughs> record it again. Uh, anyways, so uh, he continues to define it. Logotherapy focuses rather on the future, that is to say, on the meanings to be fulfilled by the patient in his future. Logotherapy focuses on the meaning of human existence as well as on man's search for such a meaning. According to logotherapy, this striving to find a meaning in one's life is the primary motivational force in man. So it's kind of a, a balancing of the account, right? It's finding the why for your existence. Um, and the search for things which make the suffering 
meaningful. <laughs> uh, it's, it's getting a little fishy here. Uh, make it worthwhile, right? Being hungry one day and then you get a good meal the next day. Well, I appreciate the good meal better now, more now, because I had I have experienced hunger. I have experienced want. So now when I have plenty, I appreciate it more. Again, a little bit of cold comfort for when you're going through the hard times, but when you can put the pieces in order and compare it to, this is an age thing, when you're older and you have more experience, you have more negative and positive uh, scenarios to compare any one moment to, right? And you can then, you, you see that there's a path through it, and having that path through it is that you pursuing that goal that finding that you know uh, crushing the how right but uh he goes on man's search for meaning is the primary motivation in his life and not a secondary rationalization of instinctual drives there are some authors who contend that meanings and values are nothing but defense mechanisms reaction formations and sublimations but as for myself, I would not be willing to live merely for the sake of my defense mechanisms, nor would I be ready to die merely for the sake of my reaction formations. Man, however, is able to live and even to die for the sake of his ideals and values. And you see this in revolutions, you know, civil wars... Uh, I don't know, in some sense, even like suicide bombings, right? I mean, somebody really believes in something and they commit to it in a way that is irrational. And it's because that belief gives their life meaning and then they fulfill the meaning, right? If you think your life's purpose is to be a doctor and you become a doctor and you're pursuing your meaning that you've in some sense created for yourself right um but you can pursue life with a, a ferocity when you have those beliefs like a suicide bomber if, if if all the suicide bombers went after uh you know being artists or being engineers the way they went after you know blowing up that suicide vest we'd have some really, really committed doctors, right? We would have some really energetic doctors. Uh, anyways, I digress. As for myself, when I was taken to the concentration camp of Auschwitz, a manuscript of mine ready for publication was confiscated. Certainly, my deep desire to write this manuscript anew helped me to survive the rigors of the camps I was in. For instance, when in a camp in Bavaria I fell ill with typhus fever, I jotted down on little scraps of paper many notes intended to enable me to rewrite the manuscript should I live to the day of liberation. I am sure that this reconstruction of my lost manuscript in the dark barracks of a Bavarian concentration camp assisted me in overcoming the danger of cardiovascular collapse. So there's that connection there, right? That pursuing the goal and kind of, I mean, you know, he says cardiovascular collapse. I mean, kind of keeping your blood up, right? Staying awake, uh, staying, you know, I, I kind of think of like a gritted teeth kind of thing, right? Like keeping up the fight because there's a reason for it. There's a purpose to it. It's not just dismal misery. It's 
it's kind of a primal ferocity to you know to keep your energy up he continues thus it can be seen that mental health is based on a certain degree of tension the tension between what one has already achieved and what one still ought to accomplish or the gap between what one is and what one should become such a tension is inherent in the human being and therefore is indispensable to mental well-being what man actually needs is not a tensionless state but rather the striving and struggling for a worthwhile goal a freely chosen task what he needs is not the discharge of tension at any cost but the call of a potential meaning waiting to be fulfilled by him so it's it's easy to you know dope up it's easy to drink it's easy maybe to do drugs it's easy to i don't know even in some sense hide in distraction um you know movies and tv and uh maybe even a hobby you kind of hide in it and what you what you really need though is not just relaxation what you need is conflict you know without without conflict you don't have progress there's nothing that's testing your pursuit of the meaning right there's no challenge well then what what meaning what, what meaning do you find if there's no uh you know i guess hoops to jump through whether they're on fire or not right uh but but he goes on the existential vacuum is a widespread phenomenon of the 20th century this is understandable it may be due to a twofold loss which man has had to undergo since he became a truly human being at the beginning of human history man lost some of the basic animal instincts in which an animal's behavior is embedded and by which it is secured such security like paradise is closed to man forever man has to make choices in addition to this however man has suffered another loss in his more recent development inasmuch as the traditions which buttressed his behavior are now rapidly diminishing no instinct tells him what he has to do and no tradition tells him what he ought to do sometimes he does not even know what he wishes to do instead he either wishes to do what other people do conformism or he does what other people wish him to do totalitarianism the existential vacuum manifests itself mainly in a state of boredom in actual fact boredom is now causing and certainly bringing to psychiatrists more problems to solve than distress so that conformism totalitarianism model that he kind of puts forward there uh it kind of goes back to the letting someone else define your meaning for you all right someone dictating it to you or simply going along with the crowd right if everyone was a drug addict then there you would apparently see nothing wrong with being a drug addict that's the conformism and that can be negative or you can be totalitarianism it's one thing to be involved in a big endeavor and it's another thing to be forced into that endeavor so something like addiction or um or safe kind of social practices that are conformist is it compromises your own pursuit of your own meaning in the same way that like in his case 
being dictated to every aspect of your life is being dictated to you as a prisoner um, that is also compromising your honest pure pursuit of satisfying of finding meaning right you're not creating your own meaning your meaning is being dictated to you and uh, when, when he talks about the traditions as well I mean we, we're talking about things like religion and stuff like that and we've we have arrived at a uh, somewhat intimidating place in the world you know um, we, we're not certain about our uh, anymore we're often not certain about how good our nation is how proud our nation is uh, or whether our religion is true or not there's a lot of problems with every religion as far as factualness right you know we, we've been into outer space and God wasn't sitting up there and we've sent Voyager probes outside the solar system and they haven't gotten swallowed up by uh, you know space gods and miracles statistically don't really happen prayer has no statistical um, real influence aside from maybe the belief that you're going to be better right and that you know that uh, that lunar new year kind of phenomenon happening there uh, but there's no supernatural connection uh, people don't pray to win the lottery and then they win the lottery so these uh, religious traditions uh, maybe a lot of social institutions maybe it's uh I don't know, maybe it's, it's the pursuit of you know, equal rights for labor or it's uh, you know, political things, right? All of these struggles, you kind of step back from them and you go, well, is this really, is this really a self-defining thing? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's a big deal. A lot of times it really isn't and it's not reliable, right? A priest telling you, here's what your purpose is in life, is to serve God. Oh, here, here's a collection plate. Put money in this. Uh, it's all, you know, it's all suspect, it's all suspicious. And so then you're left kind of with nothing. You're left with defining and creating your own meaning. And that is, in some sense, a big part of what the 20th century was about, right? And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm rambling here, and you probably already get this, but I gave you, like, a whole bunch of examples. So think about that, right? That uh, you're creating your own meaning, uh, you probably are, hopefully are. Uh, you're creating your own meaning in life. It's not being dictated to you by, say, a government or a, a or a, a religious group, or hopefully it's not even being dictated directly anyway by family, friends, etc. Right? Anyway, he continues. The meaning of life. I doubt whether a doctor can answer this question in general terms. For the meaning of life differs from man to man, from day to day, and from hour to hour. What matters, therefore, is not the meaning of life in general, but rather the specific meaning of a person's life at a given moment. To put the question in general terms would be comparable to the question posed to, to a chess champion. Tell me, master, what is the best move in the world? There simply is no such thing as the best or even a good move apart from a particular situation in a game and the particular personality of one's opponent. The same holds for human existence. One should not search for an abstract meaning of life. Again, define it for yourself and navigate. You can't go on autopilot. It's, it's a constant struggle. If it doesn't feel like it is, you're probably not doing enough, or you're not being honest about it, 
or you're not pursuing enough, right? <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're not aiming high enough, right? He continues, the essence of existence. This emphasis on responsibleness is reflected in the categorical imperative of logotherapy, which is, live as if you were living already for the second time, and as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you are about to act now. It seems to me that there is nothing which would stimulate a man's sense of responsibleness more than this maxim, which invites him to imagine first that the present is past, and second, that the past may yet be changed and amended. On that note, I'm going to pause it real quick and save this file. All right, here we go again. <laughs> so, you know, if you're going to make the same mistake over and over again, you know, you always do what you always done, you always get what you always got. So step back from it, okay? What do you think is going to happen if you continue to do what you're doing? Is it going to bring you what it is that you're trying to have? Is it going to alleviate your suffering? Now, realize that it could still be wrong, but just think about it again, right? Think about it another way. What's going to go wrong with it this time? And from this, you can kind of start to glean a, a path, right? A goal and, and a method to try to work through it. And that responsibility, right? You have a responsibility to cope, damn you, to handle it. Because others are struggling too. And hopefully, there's some synergy and some aid from people around you. You cope Sometimes you can't always cope the best way. They understand because you've been there with them when they're not coping well, right? So he continues with the meaning of love. Love is the only way to grasp another human being in the innermost core of his personality. No one can become fully aware of the very essence of another human being unless he loves him. By his love, he is enabled to see the essential traits and features in the beloved person. And even more, he sees that which is potential in him, which is not yet actualized, but yet ought to be actualized. So, you know, loving someone else and knowing them in a, a very intimate way, and not necessarily in a, in a physical way, but in a, in a very deep way, shows you, you you get to see their shortcomings, right? This is kind of projection, right? You see their shortcomings. They might not see them in the same way they might see your shortcomings and you're just completely blind to them. When you have a, a, a mutual love and respect between people, there's a certain points where you can share that observation with them and they and they with you and you learn about what might most be deeply critically wrong with you uh, so that love and trust and respect is uh, and honesty is very very important in you know in real relationships you know hopefully you don't spring that kind of shit on a bus driver that you don't know but uh, you you have an opportunity to engage with this process with people who you're actually very close with and that you care for and that's the deepest reflection that you're going to get, right? It's closer than what a therapist is going to give you. It's closer than really like a priest is going to give you. 
it's going to come from another person and hopefully it will be honest um and and you loving them and and you know informing them of you know maybe what they mean to you uh what you really love about them what you don't love about them that's all going to serve a purpose for them as well right so it's a it's a back and forth kind of process so uh we'll finish up here the meaning of suffering we must never forget that we may also find meaning in life even when confronted with a hopeless situation when facing a fate that cannot be changed for what then matters is to bear witness to the uniquely human potential at its best which is to transform a personal tragedy into a triumph to turn one's predicament into a human achievement when we are no longer able to change a situation we are challenged to change ourselves so that's um it's kind of that uh you know don't sometimes you don't change the world sometimes you just change yourself right and uh one of the things he's he's getting at here too is a little bit meta which is that it's like yes you can get through it like until you are dead you can get through it and uh and that people have gone through all kinds of hellish things right all kinds of nightmarish uh sufferings and tortures and short-term ones and long-term ones and physical ones and emotional ones and you you know loss and everything and people get through it and who they are is in some sense how they handled tragedy and loss and suffering and that you are again that do go back to that just as much your positive experience and your positive thoughts as you are your negative thoughts and your negative experiences and both are unique to you even though there might be similarities you know there are certain similarities right everybody is has to face their mortality at some point everyone has to face their fragility uh pain and, and pain avoidance um everyone has to suffer emotional loss and you know pets die and you know relationships end and you know you disappointments and and all these things and in some sense uh holocaust literature is oftentimes kind of like a suffering porn it's it's the worst situations imaginable and it puts your suffering in context um and again again the, the comparison isn't fair uh, to make because you know we're not in concentration camps hopefully if you're listening to me you're not listening from a concentration camp uh but we we get perspective on our own lives from the suffering and the stories of from others um and we we want to believe in ourselves there it is again right it's we want to believe in ourselves that we can change our context and that we can make the world a better place at least for ourselves right victor frankel man search for meaning uh the copy i had was from beacon press um include the links here uh go purchase it you might be able to find it on uh maybe on an audiobook and 
yeah, I mean, you got to check it out. Read the whole thing. There's there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. There's uh, horrors as well as insights and things that were a little too a little too long or didn't uh, didn't extract right as excerpts. And you know, uh, I don't want to read the whole book uh, verbatim to you because we're already you know um, about an hour or so now. Uh, but yeah, check this book out. It meant a lot to me, and of course, include one of my favorite quotes. Then you know that I learned from this book was from Nietzsche that. Uh, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how, right? And uh, it's something that I've I've always remembered. So I hope that I've given you some useful information here and that it means to you what it meant to me and that hopefully it has a net positive experience in your life and that you would want to share, I don't know, share this this heartwarming inspiring podcast by me Kyle or or just share the book you know uh, share the book with somebody who you think is suffering and maybe is lost right and uh we'll all I mean we'll all pull together and we'll we'll keep trying to solve this thing right because all the tragedies are going to keep going but we uh we gotta do what we can to solve the problems that we're being faced with and uh, we, we're not going to do it alone. we got to do it together, right? I don't even like some of you people, but you're coming too, right? We're, you're coming along with us, and we gotta, we got to try to fix this thing, and we'll get through it together, or you get through it all alone. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Kyle Style Podcast. Hopefully going to have some new, hopefully lighter, happier content coming up for you with a little, uh, little more fun stuff. And uh, I wanted to get this one out to you because I thought thought it was very meaningful and it was very good for you uh, to hear all these things. So, uh, you know the spiel, uh, redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Kyle Style Design. Uh, <clears throat> started to lose my voice here. Uh, buy some of my artwork and contribute to the podcast that way. Uh, leave ratings and reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast Addict. I think they have a rating thing. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at KStylePodcast. And uh, let me know what you think, how crazy you think I am, how right you think I am, how uh, handsome, strikingly handsome you think I am. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, yakking at you on the next podcast. So, until then, bye-bye.